Yeah, there's a lot of pictures. Very fun pictures. Okay, first of all, all right, manifestations of liver disease. First of all, inflammation. What happens when there's inflammation of an organ? Okay, there's damage to that organ. What happens when a cell is destroyed? Whatever's on the inside leaks out. Now, what does the liver do? Okay, so it breaks down toxins and secretes them. What else does it do? It makes and stores sugar and fats. And it's a, it's a manufacturing center for proteins. So, as a result, when you have um, inflammation of the liver, you're going to have enzymes leak out into the blood. The two most common enzymes to check are AST and ALT. The other thing that will happen a lot of times in inflammation is you'll have fatty infiltrates. You have fatty tissue start growing into the liver, and that's called steatosis. It's most commonly associated with alcoholic hepatitis. And then the liver itself will get big, and you can find that when you do your abdominal exam. Another thing that can happen in uh, kidney or liver disease is portal hypertension, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And then we can have functional changes. And the two functional changes are jaundice and lowered proteins. And the, the protein that we're most likely going to check is called albumin. And then eventually, if the damage doesn't get stopped, the liver will scar up, and that's called cirrhosis. Cirrhosis is usually a small, scarred liver. So you start out with the inflammation. You have a nice big liver. Well, not a nice big, you have a big liver. And then eventually, as the damage continues, it shrivels up into a little prune that we call cirrhosis. All right, Alco uh, hepatitis can be, can be caused by alcohol, but most hepatitis is caused by viruses. Viruses A, B, C, D, E, and G. But by far, the most common are A, B, and C. So here's the breakdown in the United States. 44% of hepatitis is hep B. Um, hepatitis B is present in all secretions. Sweat, saliva, tears, you name it, it's there. Um, it can be transmitted sexually and was considered a sexually transmitted disease. It can also be um, transmitted through blood supply and blood, uh, you know, blood products. My mom, when she was in a nurse in the army, got hepatitis because of a needle stick. So you can get it that way, and it's why all of you had to get hepatitis vaccines before you came into the program because needle sticks are part of our occupational hazard. 37% um, in the United States is hepatitis A. Now, look at the back of your pen for a moment. Do you have teeth marks on that pen? If you do, you're at risk for hepatitis A if you are a chronic chewer. If you just chew on things. I have, I have students who will borrow a pen from me and I get it back five minutes later and it's chewed. Yes, I give them the pen. 
but they're at risk for hepatitis A. Hepatitis A is what we call an oral fecal route. Well, if you're vaccinated, you probably won't get it. You can keep chewing your pen. 19% of hepatitis in the United States is hepatitis C. Now, hepatitis C is primarily a percutaneous route, meaning it has to break the skin. So tattoos were fairly common. Um, Now they've changed the way they do tattoos, primarily because of the risk of hepatitis C. Um, It's very rare that if you have a monogamous couple where one person has it, that they'll spread it to the other person, unless they're sharing drug paraphernalia with one another. So um, hepatitis C is usually not transmitted sexually. However, 10% of all cases, we can't figure out how they got it. So so they might be lying to us. (laughs) It can be gotten from blood transfusions, but we test for it now. So that's only in the older days. Now, there's two aspects to hepatitis. One is the liver damage itself. And this is immune-mediated necrosis. Basically, your immune system, in the process of attacking the uh, virus, kills off parts of the liver. Because how do viruses work? They go into a cell and they take it over and start producing, they turn it into a little virus factory. The only way to fight that is to kill that cell. So as your body kills its own liver cells, it causes immune-mediated necrosis. There are also systemic effects, and those are caused by a type 3 reaction. What is a type 3 reaction? So when you have an antigen and an antibody that float in the blood somewhere else and cause inflammation somewhere else. Um, now, as far as symptoms go, some people have what we call latent infection, which means they never show any, in, any signs of infection, at least in an acute situation. So they could have it for years and not know it. 30% of hep B patients don't have any symptoms. And 80% of hepatitis C. And that's why there was such a huge epidemic, because no one knew they had it, and they were giving it to other people including some cute people or people who are formerly cute, like Pamela Anderson. <laughs> formerly cute. If you ever saw her on if you ever saw her on Home Improvement Yes. Yeah. Um, now the acute phase of the infection lasts one to four months. Patient's gonna have malaise, anorexia, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal abdominal pain. Also fever, headache Icterus is optional. What is icterus? Icterus is when they get yellow um, in the eyes and the skin, jaundice. So not every patient who has hepatitis will get jaundice. That's why it says optional. You don't get to choose. The disease will choose for you. Next, we have the convalescent stage, which can last two to four months. So... Hang on. Don't worry about the... We'll get to the pictures. Don't worry. Now, if a patient is unlucky, they could take, they could take up to eight months to really completely recover from hepatitis. And then some patients go into a chronic phase where they keep the disease forever until they die. Um, it's uncommon in hepatitis A and it is most common in hepatitis C. And then 
Some patients who are very unlucky have what's called fulminant hepatitis, where it's an extremely severe case of hepatitis, and then they die. Now, your book, your uh, med surge book doesn't know why they get that. But what we've found out is that the most probable reason is that your body is selecting for the wrong kind of helper T cell. How many types are there? Two. So helper one cells are primarily for intracellular pathogens like, like viruses. And helper two cells are primarily for external invaders like strep and staphylococcus. And if your body by accident selects for helper two over helper one, it can't fight off the hepatitis properly. And that's what we be are beginning to think is what causes this whole fulminant hepatitis. 90% of patients with fulminant hepatitis die, like within a week or two. What? Yeah. That's, don't worry, I won't be on a test. Maybe a bonus question. But maybe not. All right. In hepatitis, we are going to check LFTs, liver function tests. Liver function tests, there's a bunch of them. But again, the main ones are AST and ALT. Sometimes you'll see them by their older names, which are SGOT and SGPT. If you see these, what are you going to think? AST and ALT. If those numbers are high, that means there is liver inflammation of some kind. We can also check albumin and globulin levels. And then we can check specifically for antibodies. We can check for surface and core antibodies types IgM and IgG. What is the difference between IgM and IgG? Which one comes first? How do you know? Because Dr. Heyman told us so. Alright, so IgM is what's naturally produced by B cells. IgG is kind of like a very highly refined, much more effective antibody. So it's produced later on. So if IgM is high and IgG is low, what does that mean? IgM is high, IgG is low. What does that mean? It means it's a new infection because their body hasn't had a, a chance to develop the IgG. If IgG is high and IgM is low, then what does that mean? It's probably a chronic or recurrent infection. Um, you can also test for antigens, which is the presence of the bacteria of the virus itself. And again, you can check for surface and core antigens. All right, next we have the portal vein system. So this big honking thing is your liver. This green thing is your gallbladder. These yellow things are kidneys. And this is a spleen. Now, they are all connected by a tube. And that tube is called the... This tube is called the portal vein. The portal vein is fed by the spleen, the kidneys, and the mesenteric, the mesenteric veins. Actually, sorry, not by the kidneys. The kidneys go directly to the vena cava. So it's fed by the spleen and by the mesenteric veins. Where do mesenteric veins come from? 
They come from the stomach. So when you eat a meal, the food goes into your stomach, down to your intestines, and then is absorbed into the mesenteric veins. Those nutrients, fresh from your body, fresh from your stomach and intestines, then go to the portal vein where they go into the liver for for processing. So your liver will take some of the stuff out and throw it away because it's because it's toxin. Some of it it's going to take out and it's going to break it down into something harmless and throw it away. Some of it it's going to break it down, put it into another form and ship it out for the rest of your body to use. Okay, it'll, it'll take some of the glucose and make it into triglycerides. It'll take those amino acids, turn them into proteins. But it's got to go through the liver first. And what feeds the liver for that filtering? The portal vein. Now, portal hypertension, there's a couple different reasons for it. So, you can have a clot in the portal vein. That'll cause blood to back up, causing portal hypertension. Inflammation of the liver will cause a blockage of blood flow through the liver, causing portal hypertension. And cirrhosis, when you get that shrunken little liver, blood can't go through it as well, causing portal hypertension. Um, then there's some other things, but they're not as important. The important ones are inflama inflammation and cirrhosis. These are the two big ones. Now, as the blood backs up, it has to go somewhere. Where does it go? Okay, it can back up to the mesenteric veins. It can also back up to the spleen. What will happen is the spleen gets bigger with blood. Splenomegaly. It can also form what we call collateral circulation, where you start going around the blockage. How many of you have ever driven on I-95 and it's incredibly backed up? What do you do? You get off and you go on US-1 or Congress or something else, right? Okay. So that's essentially what your body's going to do. It's going to start shunting that blood to other places, three places in particular. And the reason for these three places is because they're on the surface of the body and that's where there's less pressure. So the first one is into the esophagus and that's called esophage esophageal varices. The word varus, varics or varices means varicose. So, how many of you have seen someone with varicose veins? What is a varicose vein? It's a swollen and engorged vein. Now, we usually think of them as being on a woman's legs, where they just kind of, you know, maybe look a little ugly and maybe they hurt occasionally, but it's not really a big deal, right? It's, it's just cosmetic. But they can also occur in your esophagus. Now, what do you do three times a day? Eat. And every time you eat, what happens to that food? It's going to scrape by those varices. And eventually, they will break open and the patient will bleed to death. If esophageal varices rupture, that patient will most likely die before you can do anything about it. We'll talk about it in a second. The next thing that can happen is they can go to the abdominal wall. We call that caput medusa, the head of medusa. And the third place they can go is to the rectum, where they will cause hemorrhoids. Now, in addition to the backing up of blood, 
You'll also get what we call splanchnic artery dilation, ascites, and hepatic encephalopathy. We'll talk about those in just a moment. So splenomegaly causes premature erythrocyte removal. What will that cause for the patient when you draw their labs? Low red blood cells. What's the name for that? Anemia. Now, what's going to be high in their blood? If you, bilirubin, because you're breaking down those red blood cells too quickly. What kind of anemia would that be called? Hemolytic. All right, here's a picture of what we do for a patient with esophageal varices. We stick a balloon down their, down their throat, and then we blow it up, and it pushes the varices in and applies pressure to them so they can't break. This... Well, in this case, the varices would be at the lower portion of the esophagus. And this tube is called a Sengsting Blakemore. I don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, this is an ICU thing, and I'm not an ICU person, so. Yeah. No, you need to know it. You will see it again. You need to know that, that this happens, but. Really, you're going to say, my patient has this. We're going to send them to the, the ICU so they can do that. Yeah. It's temporary, but I don't know what they do with them after that. So anyway, we're going to increase the pressure on those varices so they don't rupture and the patient does not bleed to death. Now, who's this? Medusa. Medusa. How can you tell? She's got head of a snake. Now, she was supposedly a very beautiful woman. And uh, someone, I think it was Zeus maybe, um, raped her in Athena's temple. Now, Athena, rather than blaming Zeus, because it was her dad, blamed the woman and punished the woman by turning her into a gorgon. So if anyone looked at her, they would turn to stone until a brave Greek warrior, hero, killed her. What was that guy's name? Not Hercules. <laughs> Perseus. And when Perseus finally chopped off her head, guess what happened when the blood spilled on the ground? Pegasus was born out of that blood. <laughs> Haven't you guys had Humanities 1? Don't you know anything? <laughs> you know, like, maybe would pay attention if they showed us good pictures. So anyway... Oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, head of a snake. Medusa has snake for hair. That's the important thing. Now, you really can't see it in this picture um, on the screen. So here. Do you see these veins that are on the outside? This patient has ascites, which we'll talk about in a moment. But they've got veins on the surface that's called caput medusa. Again, you can see them kind of running along in here. And then this is the nice one. That's just fluid. We'll talk about the fluid in a second. Yeah. All right. Here's your hemorrhoid. All right. So those are the places that blood backs up to. What are the three places blood backs up to? Esophagus. Spleen. The abdomen and the rectum. 
All right, next we have something we call splanchnic artery dilation. Now, splanchnic is a fancy word for saying gut. So we have gut arteries that are being inappropriately dilated. Now, what does that mean if they dilate? Does more or less blood go through them? More. If there's more blood going through them, there's less blood going to the rest of the body. So the rest of the body becomes hypotensive. So you've got increased blood pressure going to the gut. You've got decreased blood pressure everywhere else. If there's decreased blood pressure everywhere else, how does your body respond to that? Epinephrine, norepinephrine, and renin angiotensin aldosterone. So the patient is going to begin to retain water. So remember, what are the three things that cause fluid overload? Heart failure, kidney failure, liver failure. So why does liver failure cause fluid overload? Because you've got inappropriate gut dilation, which is stealing blood from the rest of the body. So the rest of the body responds by epinephrine, norepinephrine, renin, angiotensin, aldosterone, just like heart failure. So the patient's going to have vasoconstriction. Will they be pale or red? They'll be pale. Will they have high heart rate or low heart rate? High. Will they have increased fluid or decreased fluid? Increased fluid. The other thing that will happen is you're going to have more blood going through the portal system, which is going to drive the portal hypertension to be worse and cause ascites. Now, what is ascites, you ask? Go ahead. Okay. So, it's water in the peritoneal space. It's technically called a transudate because it's just fluid-filled or protein-filled water. And basically what happens is as you have this increased amount of pressure, what happens in liver disease? Does liver work well? What is liver in charge of producing? Protein. So what's the major protein in the blood? Albumin. So if there's lower albumin, the patient is more likely to get Okay. What are the things that enhance where blood go where water goes in the blood? Hydrostatic pressure? Osmotic pressure? Lymph drainage? And capillary permeability. Now, what's in charge of producing osmotic pressure? Blood pressure. What's in charge of producing hydrostatic pressure? I think I said that wrong. Hydrostatic pressure is the amount of water. Is there more water in the system here? Yes. Why? Okay. In the portal system is what I mean. So there's more pressure in the portal system. So you want to push water out of the portal vein. At the same time, what affects osmotic pressure? The albumin level. So if there's lowered albumin in liver disease, blood is more likely to, or water is more likely to get pushed out. So we've got two reasons now why your body wants to push water out of the portal vein. Now, where is the portal vein located? In the abdomen. So where does all that water go? in the abdomen, in the peritoneal space. And that collection of fluid is called ascites, which if you look back at these pictures, 
ascites, ascites, ascites. Now, how do you know if it's ascites and not just someone who's fat? You can check for what they call the fluid wave. There's two ways to do it. You can bounce one side and see if it, you know, get a wave. You know, like when you're in the bathroom, you go, tidal wave. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Capsize little ducky. <laughs> okay, same thing. So you push on one side and see if it bounces through to the other side. The other thing you can do is squeeze it upwards and then let it go and see the waves. Yeah. Now, if there's blood in there, then the patient will probably be dead. Yeah, because that means they're bleeding into the peritoneal space. All right, now, manifestations of ascites. You've got the distended abdomen, the fluid wave. Why respiratory distress? Okay, so if you've got this giant mass in your belly, it's pushing on the diaphragm preventing the diaphragm from moving downwards normally. So the patient's going to be breathing like very shallowly. Also can cause electrolyte imbalances because you've got this huge volume of water in the abdomen. Now the treatment, there's two treatments. The first one is fix the underlying cause. And the other one is drain the water out. Now draining the water out has a special name, paracentesis. So here is a really, really enormous one. That's a belly button. It takes a while. Now, you see these tubes right here? These tubes are draining away that fluid, and that's called paracentesis. So you're going to put a needle into that giant fluid and pull it all out. Now, I have seen them personally with my own eyes take off 20 liters off of one person in one day. Now, how much does 20 liters weigh? 20 times 2.2. It's about 44 pounds, which is about, oh, half of Nicole. Yeah. In one day. Now, what's the problem with taking that much fluid off someone in one day. Yeah. Now, if you've got all of this pressure on the person, that pressure is actually increasing their blood pressure. So if you take it off too quickly, you can actually cause them to go into shock. So as you drain that off, you have to drain it off very slowly. And you can also cause electrolyte imbalances. I don't know. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, no. Okay, now the question is, well, how do you get like that? Well, when, you get, when you're in liver failure, there's no way to avoid it. It's going to happen. The only way to avoid it is to get a liver transplant. Once, once the damage is done, yeah, it'll build back up again. Now, at the same time, this person, in addition to having this enormous belly, also has enormous amounts of edema in their legs because gravity is pulling some of that stuff from their abdomen down into their legs. So what this person is going to look like, 
is they're going to have these enormous tree trunk legs. I mean, just like full of edema. Where, I mean, like you can like put your finger all the way, like pitting, it's like, you know, you just, your finger just keeps going down. They're going to have this enormous belly. But because they've got lowered protein being produced by their, their liver, they're going to have typically very thin little arms because there's no muscle left in their body. So giant tree trunk edematous legs, giant belly from the ascites, hemorrhoids and, and caput medusa, and skinny little arms. <laughs> now, what else gets produced by the liver besides albumin? In terms of protein. Okay, fibrinogen and clotting factors. So our patient is also probably going to be bruised because they can't heal as quickly. They can't clot as well. And what's the number one component of antibodies? Proteins. Where do those proteins come from originally? The liver. So you're also going to have reduced antibodies. You're also going to have reduced complement cascade. So that's going to make the patient more at risk for infection. All right. Next, we have jaundice. Jaundice is caused by excess bilirubin. And bilirubin is a breakdown product of red blood cells. And our patient has splenomegaly, so they're going to have increased destruction of red blood cells, which in itself can cause bilirubin to go up. But now our liver isn't working right. So if the liver is not conjugating bilirubin, it can't secrete it into your uh, feces. And if it can't excrete it, then you're also going to have a buildup. So the buildup is called jaundice. And icterus is when you have yellowing of the sclera. It's wonderful. Now, you're also going to have decreased liver function, which is going to cause decreased plasma enzymes, which is going to lead to edema, increased bleeding, and increased infection. At the same time, you're going to have decreased removal of waste products. So we're going to have drug levels become toxic. And we're also going to have increased ammonia levels. Now, where does ammonia come from in your body? What process makes ammonia? No, your urine gets rid of it through urea. So your body takes ammonia, turns it into urea, and then your kidneys get rid of it. But where does the ammonia come from in the first place? What kind of food? Well, there's three macronutrients. What are they? <laughs> that was very funny. Okay, fats and lipids. Carbohydrates. Proteins. Which are the three? Proteins. So when patients eat protein, the liver is in charge of breaking down the proteins. And part of that metabolism ends up creating ammonia, which it then turns into Urea, blood urea nitrogen, BUN, which your kidneys then excrete. If your liver can't do that, you're going to have high levels of ammonia. So, which brings us to our next one, hepatic encephalopathy. How many of you have ever smelled ammonia? Yeah. And then you wish you hadn't. Because it like assaults you like nothing else. You're like, <laughs> it's toxic stuff. It can kill you if you breathe in pure ammonia gas. So 
what happens is as you get in a buildup of ammonia in your body, you actually begin to poison your brain. And that's called encephalopathy. The manifestations are changes in personality, memory, and confu- memory loss and confusion, something called asterixis, which is if you have them hold their hands out, they do this. Their hands flap. Because they can't, they can't hold their hands straight. They do this. Stupor, which is um, what some of you are in the morning. <laughs> you're like, not, you're, you're not in a coma yet, <laughs> but you're not awake. <laughs> That's stupor. And then coma. Um, by the way, if a patient has acute liver failure, these, mem- these mental things are the first thing that happen if a person has acute. Um, treatment is low-protein diet, and you're going to give them lactulose, which is going to suck that ammonia into their gut, where they're going to poo it out with a nice diarrhea. I don't know. This is, that's the main thing. Now, um, in our patient, why is our patient going to be admitted to the hospital next Friday? Why is our patient with heart with liver failure going to be admitted to the hospital next Friday? It's what? It's the day after Thanksgiving. And they went home and they just couldn't resist mom's turkey dinner. So high protein diet, end up in the hospital. But it was so worth it. Now let's go back for a moment to here. What do you think we're going to treat this patient with because of the increased epi and norepi and increased renin-angiotensin aldosterone? We're going to use beta blocker, not, not, um, not ACE inhibitors, because the problem with ACE inhibitors and ARBs is they cause vasodilation, and that will cause our patient to become hypotensive. But what else can we use that will attack the renin-angiotensin aldosterone system? What? Okay, if we give them like Lasix, they're going to get hypotensive also. So we can't attack the renin. We can't attack the angiotensin. But what's the drug for that? What's the drug for aldosterone? Aldactone is spironolactone. So we're going to use a beta blocker and we're going to use spironolactone for patients with liver failure. 